Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially with me, Ben Triggs, and as always, the wonderful author and commercial awareness guru, Chris Stokes. We have an absolutely fantastic episode lined up for you today with lots of fantastic business and commercial trends being discussed, as well as some key stories that you might have seen over the last few weeks. So in terms of what we're covering, we're going to be covering intellectual property and the potential that it would be wavered by these big pharmaceutical firms over their vaccines. And then are we actually heading into the roaring 20s economically? But then on the flip side of that, why is there a worry about rising inflation? And we'll also be looking at AT&T creating the next big or potentially the next big streaming service and why this story is so good for commercial awareness. We'll also have plenty more and a few questions from our listeners, which we'll put into Chris at the end of the episode. Let's get started. Hi there and welcome, Chris. How is everything going today? Everything is going really well, Ben. Really looking forward to this particular uh, episode of our podcast. I massively agree. We've been talking over the last uh, few weeks since the last one about what topics we cover, like we do every time, three topics, um, which we think are really interesting at the moment, but not just ones that you'll read about and then forget about. These are things which are part of wider business trends that we think you guys need to be knowing about um, as current students, recent graduates, um, all the kind of business stories and the insights that hopefully you can take into your interviews, put in your applications, or generally just when you're entering the world of work, hopefully feeling a little bit more clued up when it comes to those first few days, first few months, because uh, we understand that is quite a daunting step um, after years of university. I know a lot of people will be graduating in the next month or two. And but yeah, Chris, have you uh, been enjoying the last few weeks? We obviously had a little bit more freedom. Um, we are doing this. We are two days since pubs. You're allowed in England to be in a pub indoors. Have you been enjoying, well, it's been raining quite a lot, but have you been enjoying the, uh, the newfound freedoms? I have gradually, gradually poking my snout out outdoors and uh, getting a sense of what normal life uh, might, might well be like now that uh, we're getting back that way, which is great. It is. It's really, it's really nice to have a mix. Obviously, um, you know, still mainly working remotely and doing all of that sort of stuff. But I think... Uh, I think uh, now the, well, the weather hasn't been great. I'm very British talking about the weather straight away. It's meant to be a business <laughs> podcast and we're uh, meteorologists now and or very amateur meteorologists anyway. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, hopefully the weather turns as well. So it does feel very summery and uh, a little bit more positivity on the uh, horizon as well, which is, uh, which is a nice thing. There's obviously challenges still, but uh, a nice thing to see. And hopefully um, you're looking forward to um, a nice summer. Um, as I say, if you are still at university um yeah probably only a month or two until you're enjoying your summer um i'm sure you hopefully got lots of um, interesting career related stuff as well lined up whether it's internships and i'm going to do an absolute shameless plug but internship experience uk bright networks internship has launched but yes if you are a bright network member if you're not and fancy a three-day uh, bit of work experience so uh, definitely do head to the bright network website uh, where you can find out a little bit more about that and um, beyond that the uh, promo is completely over we're gonna start cracking into the first of our three stories are you ready to go chris ready to go ben 
Right, so the first story that we are going to cover today is um, very related to what you would have been seeing in the news over the last few weeks. I think it would have been quite difficult to avoid this story over the last week or two from the time that we're recording this episode um, surrounding the pandemic is around vaccines and whether the companies that are producing the vaccine, so Moderna, Pfizer, AZ, whether they should um, waiver intellectual property. So basically all the innovation they've put into uh, creating the vaccine, they keep that behind closed doors. They can obviously sell uh, the vaccine to uh, countries across the world. Um, but there has been a lot of pressure put on, especially by governments across what I think over 100 governments um, have, uh, including the US, uh, have pushed, have pressed those uh, companies to um, yeah, offer all the information on how to, in effect, make the vaccines. However, it hasn't been met with a lot of positivity by everybody. Um, I think the companies themselves are very unsure about it, but even some governments, including Germany, um, are not sure it's the right approach to handling this. Um, but what we want to cover is not just this story specifically. As I say, we're all about looking at the bigger picture. We want to talk a little bit about um, intellectual property. Um, so, Chris, first of all, before we get started, could you give a brief couple of minutes on what is intellectual property? Why does the law around it exist? Um, and why is it important um, for business? Fine. Well, um, uh, IP, which stands for intellectual property, re really represents knowledge. And I think the starting point is something as simple as an artistic work, um, a piece of music somebody's written, a picture they've painted or a book they've, they've written. If I write a book, I automatically under... Uh, English law, and this applies elsewhere as well. I, 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 I have copyright in that book, but that doesn't necessarily protect me in all ways. Um, it protects me from somebody trying to pretend that my book is their book, but I would probably need to go further in trying to prevent, protect the um, commercial benefits of it. So the way I look at intellectual property law, which is the law that protects essentially innovation, it goes from fairly weak protections that you get automatically to stronger protections that you actually have to do something about to register. And, and the two ones most relevant to business are around trademarks and registered marks on the one hand and patents on the other. So Trademarks and registered marks, these are to do with brands, to do with logos. So, for example, uh, the Coke bottle is, is registered because that bottle is very distinctive. And if anybody else tries to use that bottle and it's not Coke, then Coke can sue them. And similarly, Coke's logo, like the Nike swoosh, these are very valuable, recognizable brands that are protected by trademark law. But there's, a, an, there, there's something which applies to industrial processes rather than brands. And um, this is all around patents. And this is true of trademarks, but it's certainly true of patents. The people who basically obtain patents for companies are patent attorneys. And patent attorneys are essentially a cross between scientists and lawyers. They, they often have a science background. Now, to get a patent is actually really quite difficult because you have to show 
that there is a step in an existing process that you have made a significant change to, a significant innovation to, and then you can get a patent for that for that particular step change. And businesses that rely on intellectual property, such as pharmaceutical companies, they have thousands of patents that they file around the world to protect their, their know-how. Um, the reason why it's particularly important nowadays is because, and I've mentioned him before, uh, Peter Drucker, the management thinker and consultant, he said about 30 years ago that essentially we, we all work in the knowledge economy. It's what you know that matters, not, not what you do, or what you manufacture. And so uh, intellectual property represents what businesses know and is the basis of innovation. But of course, it costs money. Uh, and the research and development function, the R&D function in companies is where innovation goes on. And that's where new ways of doing things are, are developed. And so intellectual property usually arises from research and development. So to give you some idea, uh, Pfizer, for example, they spend almost a quarter of their annual income on research and development. And R&D in the pharmaceuticals industry is really hit and miss because what farmers are looking for is that they're looking for a, a blockbuster pharmaceutical development that will uh, really give them a boost in terms of profitability. But in most countries, patents only last for about 20 years. And when the patent expires, you face what's called a patent precipice because once your patent's expired, other pharmaceutical companies that specialize in developing what are called generics, they come in and they can manufacture and, and market perfectly legally what for the previous 20 years only you could manufacture and market. So the big challenge for pharmaceutical companies at the, the forefront of developing uh, new medications is uh, how can they develop a pipeline and most, most pharma developments never succeed. They don't pass regulatory hurdles. They don't get to market. So you have to pump an awful lot of money into trying to develop lots and lots of, of different um, uh, medications before one will actually be a success and find a market that wants to use it. Yeah, definitely. A couple of things to pick up on here. I think the first sentence you said in that answer said, if I if I was to write a book, and very modest of you, because I know for a fact that I've written some absolutely fantastic books on commercial awareness, but also a poetry book as well, um, Chris has written in the past. So um, he's got plenty of uh, of uh, of uh, intellectual property. I, I don't think you want me to mention um, that, but you can find it online. I have uh, been able to find it online, any, uh, any, any poetry fans uh, who listen to the podcast. Uh, the second point, maybe a bit more seriously on the on the topic that at hand, uh, was that the reason why IP law encourages innovation is because, as you say, um, it encourages a company like Pfizer to plow lots of money to try and develop and drive forward a new medication which can they can sell they can make a lot of money out but does it kind of have a slight inherent problem that they're only going to focus on development which is like most likely to make the money and maybe not the development which is most needed in the world because on the flip side a lot of other research is funded by governments which are very much more focused on 
I guess, solving the key challenges in either the world or a particular country? That, that's a really interesting question, Ben, and, and quite, quite a philosophical one. It, it, it is true that pharmaceutical companies will ultimately be, be driven by profit, but it's worth noting that AstraZeneca, uh, in their joint venture with Oxford University to develop the, their COVID-19 vaccine, they're not making any money out of this. They're, part of the requirement of the deal on the university's part was that sh this should be done at cost, that that nobody would make any money out of it. Um, so I think they, they, as an example, are already foregoing profit that they might otherwise make. But you're quite right. Does this therefore mean that, that uh, medications will only be developed where there is a significant market? And I suppose ultimately it probably does. But then you've got to ask yourself, what are the purpose of medications? And if the purpose is to provide the greatest benefit um, uh, to, to the greatest number for the greatest good. Maybe it's not such a bad thing that those medications that find a market are those that are likely to be used by a lot of people rather than ones that are for very uh, recherche conditions, very, very uh, um, uh, unusual conditions uh, for which developing any medication extensively would just be prohibitive in terms of cost. And in terms of this, what what are the pros and cons? I think definitely one of the disadvantages of governments forcing this upon companies is that they are much less likely to invest if they think that they won't get any real economic benefit from it. But on the other hand, I absolutely take your point that where governments fund research, it's only fair that they should benefit from that. What I would suggest in this case is that um, requiring companies to waive their intellectual property rights is actually not the right answer because some of the questions are, would that actually contribute to greater manufacture? And the answer is not because the, the COVID-19 vaccine is built on something called mRNA, which is really interesting because whereas original vaccines were about uh, injecting people with uh, a little bit of the disease to develop immunity, as I understand it, mRNA is not about that at all. It's about educating the body into developing antibodies without introducing anything that could harm that could harm one. So these are very sophisticated ways of helping individuals develop immunity. And the fact is that it's questionable whether there is any spare mRNA manufacturing capacity around. And also, it does take years to build up a high-quality vaccine supply chain. So. My suggestion would be that if developed economies, the rich countries in the world, want to encourage developing economies that are poorer and whose bargaining position may be less strong uh, to get the benefit of these, then rich countries should, should put in some of the money to pay for these vaccines so that they become more affordable to developing economies rather than asking the pharmaceutical companies to, to waive their intellectual property rights, because I think that might set quite a, a dangerous precedent, which could be, here's a lawyer speaking, of course, which, which could be used in other industries and other, in, in, in other situations. Yeah, I definitely agree with that one. And I think I was reading a lot, and I'm sure a lot of people have been reading about this as well, is that um, at the moment, almost the global capacity to produce vaccines is kind of maxed out because obviously across the world over the last year, that's what we've turned all our attention to. And therefore, even if someone knows how to make it, doesn't necessarily mean they have the ability to. And therefore, making all of this information available 
um, this innovation available, as I say, might not have quite the desired impact. So it's almost not a debate about whether right, right or wrong to do it. And I know you're going from the legal angle, but ultimately, possibly even just looking at the impact it will have, um, possibly there's other alternatives. I want to sort of, I guess, move slightly more into intellectual property. I think, you know, the ins and outs, as you say, gets quite philosophical about the the vaccine and what richer countries should be doing at the moment to support the world and get through this. Um, but keeping this on kind of a business lines, because I know you were talking and when we were messaging before, uh, before going for this recording, uh, you were talking about um, intellectual property not being treated as a maybe as a as a as positive thing in accounting standards. Could you explain to listeners what you mean by that and why that has impact on the business world? There's there's a kind of quirk to this story, which on the face of it sounds really quite boring. It's about the accounting treatment of intellectual property. And, and too long didn't read. Um, the answer is that accounts hasn't really kept up with uh, developments in intellectual property. So um, take a traditional business, a manufacturing business. It's got plant and machinery. You, you buy some equipment for your factory and there are accounting measures called amortization, which is writing off the cost and depreciation, which is allowing for the fact that over time, the machinery wears out and needs to be replaced. And, and those help you in accounting terms to uh, reduce uh, the, essentially the tax you pay because they are costs of the business and they, they, are, they are treated as such. And in fact, when you buy plant and machinery, it's treated as an investment. It's therefore a good thing. Now, one of the quirks of intellectual property is how do you develop it? Well, you develop it by bringing in really smart people to develop it for you, employees, and you pay them, and that and you pay them salaries. Salaries are an expense of the business; they're not regarded as an investment. So, one of the one of the ways in which companies that major on intellectual property can inadvertently be penalised is they could be investing in research and development to develop intellectual property, but they're not getting the accounting treatment that shows that as a benefit, but rather it shows it as an expense. So I think an interesting sideline, and I'm sure some listeners here who will um, you know, end up being accountants will specialize in this area, which I think will be absolutely fascinating, is, is um, how, how can accounting principles, which are there to protect shareholders, protect the market by giving a, a, a true and fair view of a company's real financial position. How can these standards adapt to reflect the value of intellectual property? And it's really, really difficult to put a value on these things. You know, Nike swoosh, for example, without that, would they have a business at all? How do you value it? What would be the replacement cost? What would be the cost of developing an alternative to it? And these are very interesting questions, which just underline something that any accountant will tell you, which is accountancy is more of an art than it is a science. It, it's about putting a value on things. Intellectual property is not, its true worth is not properly reflected yet in accounting standards and certainly not the cost of developing it, which actually should be an investment, but actually is treated as an expense uh, and so therefore treated as a bad thing rather than a good thing. So in very simple terms, there could be businesses out there that have 
a lot of IP, which is very useful, as you say, you know, brands, trademarks, logos, whatever it might be, um, but are possibly being undervalued um, in accounting terms. I hope people at home, whether you're going into accountancy, law, science, or any other sector found that interesting, got some really useful bits and pieces out of that. And obviously such a, a prevalent and current story. So our second story of the month is looking at the economy post-pandemic. Obviously, you would have read in the news some fantastic news about the UK economy and the global economy um, starting to pick up as more people are allowed out to the shops, to uh, hospitality industry, the pubs, restaurants and stuff like that. Um, We're expecting to see a nice uh, boom uh, sort of few months now and um, looking like um, potential. I saw some data the other day suggesting that the UK economy would return to the size it was pre-pandemic by the end of 2021. So a lot better news uh, on the economy than maybe first expected when you know people were trying to make some very quick calculations um, as, uh, as we went into the first lockdown about a year, year and a quarter um, ago. Um, but what I wanted to look at within this, and I say I'm not trying to put a dampener on the so-called roaring 20s that um, people are talking about us having, is that over the last couple of weeks, the market started to get a little bit worried about inflation. So basically, prices rising um, quicker than they should be, um, caused by there being lots of demand. So lots of money in the market, but lots of demand for goods. So people going out there and, you know, buying all these things, causing prices to, to, to go up as well. So this has spooked the markets a little bit. So uh, you might have seen there was a dip in most of the major kind of global markets. The FTSE went down, um, uh, I think, a percent, percent and a half uh, on one day after some data was released about the potential for um inflation to rise at a quicker rate than than they'd normally like. So Chris, what I wanted to ask was whether we are going into a time of economic prosperity, um, whether you see it as being these roaring 20s that has been spoken about quite a lot. Um, but what is this sort of a little flag at the moment around inflation and um, possibly the economy running a little bit too hot? I'm going to try to answer that, but but, but not speaking as, a, as an economist. So this is going to be a, a fairly, rud- fairly rudimentary answer. But um, I think to try to set this in context, one has to look at the way traditionally central banks and governments have looked at, at the money supply. Uh, so I'm, I'm going back to when I was myself a student. And in those days, central banks were really keen on keeping inflation down to about 2%. And in fact, in the 1980s, in order to keep inflation at 2%, I mean, there are only two ways in which you can, as a government, control inflation. One is through raising taxes, which is obviously very unpopular, but it means people have less money to spend. And the other is by increasing the cost of borrowing, by increasing interest rates. That's also unpopular, which is why governments tend to give that job to central banks. But those are the two ways of doing it. Now, in the 1980s, uh, governments were so worried about inflation that, in fact, interest rates in the States reached 20 percent 
which I know listeners will find incredible because interest rates are at the moment around one or so percent. So how on earth could that be? Well, historically, um, governments have always been concerned about the erosion of the value of money because the thing about inflation is that when it takes off, it can accelerate very, very quickly. And what that means is that the, the, the value of the currency, by that I mean what you can buy. So the pound in your pocket, today you go into the bakers with a pound in your pocket, you can buy a loaf of bread. If inflation were rampant, that loaf of bread might cost £1.20 tomorrow. The pound in your pocket hasn't changed. What's called its nominal value, what it's called, is still a quid. But its real value has changed because it will not buy you the whole loaf of bread that it would have bought, bought you the day before because bread is now £1.20 a loaf. And the thing about this is that when inflation kicks off, because it can accelerate exponentially, very quickly the currency becomes worthless. So there's no point in saving money because the value of it's being eroded by inflation and actually the money itself loses value. And at this point, people start to panic because they can't support their families because everything is going up so ridiculously uh, quickly in price that they can't actually afford anything. And at that point, you get unrest on the streets. And so what governments are concerned with is that runaway inflation can lead to political dislocation. That's what concerns them the most. So that was the thinking back 40 or 50 years ago. But what happened with the great financial crash of 2008 that was really interesting from a historical perspective, I know we've talked about this before, is that governments were so worried about the global economy coming to a halt because the banking system was wrecked that they pumped money into the global economy by essentially buying bonds to ensure that there was a, a lot of liquidity there so that if companies needed money to remain in business and to expand, even though the banking system wasn't working effectively, that the money would still be available. Now, I think the reason why markets are spooked is because that quantitative easing that was introduced post-2008, it's never been withdrawn. There is some expectation that sooner or later, governments are going to have to reverse this policy. Central banks will stop buying in bonds. They will start to sell bonds and soak up the excess liquidity that way, because this liquidity, this extra money is itself inflationary. The mindset that, that, that and, and this is what, this is what uh, people like consultants like to call a paradigm shift uh, or, or a secular trend. I think what's going on, there's an underlying change in our view of economics. We're moving from control of the money supply, keep inflation under control to a period where now interest rates are so low that certainly if you start to raise interest rates to stop inflation, it's going to have a really deleterious effect. Because if, if say, interest rates are at 5% and you increase them by, by 1% to 6%, yeah, that, that's, that, that's quite an increase. If interest rates are at about 0% and you increase them to 1%, that's that, that, that proportion increase is absolutely massive. And suddenly people who've bought houses on low mortgages, those interest rates go up, they won't be able to afford to, to, to pay the mortgage. So uh, markets are really, really worried about any sign of inflation if it means that as a result, governments are going to raise interest rates. And governments themselves are concerned because they don't want to raise interest rates because um, they, like, like Joe Biden and 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 
uh, Boris Johnson, they are seeing this opportunity of, of using cheap money to level up. And because one of the effects of the last 10 years post the crash of 2008 is that there's been increasing disparity in wealth. The richer have got richer, the poorer have got poorer. And that itself leads to civil unrest. And so governments are seeing this as a chance to use cheap money to, to, to level up. They don't want interest rates to go up. So just to bring this back to the present, what people are thinking is, yeah, post-COVID, we're all going to go out. We're all going to go to the pub. We're going to go to restaurants because we haven't been able to do that for a while. That, that, that pumping of money into the economy is going to be inflationary. Businesses themselves are going to be charging more anyway because they've got to make up for some of their expenses that they've incurred during the pandemic. So there's talk of the London pint no longer being £5, but being £6. And I think we'll see prices going up generally. The question is, is this a short-term blip or is this the start of something much more fundamental? Because if it's much more fundamental, it has a massive knock-on effect. If interest rates go up, companies, because they borrow money, their profitability goes down. People can't afford to buy as much, so companies sell less. Bonds go down in value because they now need to pay a high rate of interest to compensate holders, so their value goes down. And gold, which is the kind of the, the, um, the asset that investors uh, go to in times, of, in, in times of uncertainty, gold loses value because it doesn't pay an income at all. And if you can now get more money by putting your money on deposit at a bank, than you could before, then gold will suffer. So markets are spooked because they can see that if, if, if this is not a short-term post-pandemic blip, but something longer term that reflects the fact that QE post-2008 uh, hasn't been retired as quickly as people thought it would, then they're very concerned about the knock-on effects to, to equities, the share market, bonds, gold, and so on. Brilliant. That was a, a fantastic, a whirlwind tour of, uh, of what's happening in, in the space at the moment. The one thing that I wanted to talk about is the part of, there's a few things that um, are being talked about impacting inflation. Um, obviously, one of them actually is supply chains being sort of damaged by, um, by COVID, demand changing in COVID, and therefore supply hasn't caught up. So there's less goods being supplied, and therefore there's less goods classic kind of supply and demand there's more demand less goods um it prices tend to tend to rise because of it but a second thing is which i think we're talking about with the quantitative easing stuff a little bit as well is that um you see that governments are pumping money into the economy at the moment um to drive growth post-pandemic so you might have seen in march um in america um biden joe biden signed off on a uh, 1.9 trillion dollar uh, stimulus package and um, what i wanted to ask um there chris is that is it risky pumping that much money into the economy? I appreciate the American economy. That figure sounds astronomical, but when you consider how big America is, maybe you know per head or per business or whatever, it doesn't seem as big. Um, but my second question on, on this is that how does it actually put money into the economy? Um, the, the, for, for first question, uh, is it risky? It's, it's only risky if interest rates go up, and they will only go up if uh, inflation starts to increase. So is it inflationary? Possibly more inflationary than people might think, because economists are beginning to say that the period of austerity, when governments reined in spending, 
actually had the uh, indirect consequence of dampening inflation. So on the one hand, yes, it could be risky. I personally don't, don't think it is. How, how does government pump money into an economy? Well, um, it does it by, for example, infrastructure projects. So those sort of those areas where government can spend. So, for example, on National Health Service, on, on uh, HS2, uh, any sort of infrastructure that basically improves the built environment around us and improves services to us, more schools, better schools. These are areas where government can spend. And I think uh, possibly what Joe Biden is thinking of is very much uh, the health sector in the States, which obviously post-pandemic has, has, has proved to, to be inadequate, especially for the, the, the less well-off. And also by creating uh, jobs in the public sector, again, in the health service, um, in, in the police service, for example. So um, that, that's the way the government actually pumps money into the economy. Is it risky? I personally don't think so, because I think this idea that uh, governments have to be very austere is, is, is kind of a throwback to the last century. It was very much what was underpinning, say, Margaret Thatcher's approach to, to, to government in, in, in the UK. And I think what's interesting about this new paradigm is that uh, with interest rates, interest rates have been trending down for the last 30 years, which is really quite extraordinary. And I think what's interesting about this new paradigm is that with interest rates so low, we might need quite a dose of prolonged inflation uh, to feel any, any serious side effects. So for example, in Japan, in the Japanese market, if inflation became rampant, they'd actually thank you for it because uh, the Japanese market has been deflationary for the last 20 to 30 years. And a deflationary economy can be just as dangerous because people don't spend any money at all. So in a sense, nothing happens. So I, my, my feeling is that the global economy, although at a market level, it's quite fragile, I think at a fundamental level, it's sufficiently robust that we, can, we could do with a little bit of inflation as long as when government and central banks react, they, they don't overreact. Uh, and and that's 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 always the risk. Definitely, I definitely think it's a story that uh, everyone should be following. Really interesting stuff. I hope you found it interesting. Um, just to give a little bit of context, the Bank of England um, set as their benchmark or what they want to achieve when it comes to inflation of two percent in a year, uh, price rising two percent. Um, last month it was one point five percent. So we're still uh, not where we would expect to be or want to be. Um, but what people are seeing is that the month before that, it was, um, I think, at 0.7%. So inflation is rising. It's slightly due to kind of commodities like fuel, um, petrol going up quite significantly because um, of demands increased for manufacturing and stuff like that. And that does impact, uh, tends to impact uh, inflation quite heavily, um, but kind of across the board with more demand going up. And you know, so people going to the pub, people going to Primark. We saw the queues outside Primark over the last uh, few weeks uh, and stuff like that is uh, is causing that as well. My final question on, on this one, and it is quite a big one, um, but maybe a, a short answer would uh, would suffice. Hopefully, I don't think we could we could probably spend the whole podcast on it. Um, so, there's some data suggesting that the UK economy will grow by seven and a half percent this year, which would be kind of a record. And you know, in the UK, set for 
you know, a, uh, a fantastic period of, of, of growth, possibly um, outgunning some of other uh, very developed, uh, powerful economies. Um, but then there was also a think tank um, about, I think, a day or two ago uh, that said in a decade, the UK economy, um, if, uh, if, the, if it's not managed well, would look more like Italy's rather than Germany's by the end of the decade. And apologies if you are listening from Italy or Italian. I don't think that was meant in a in a positive way. Um, but yeah, what's your what's your sense? Well, as for all of these things, I think there's a short term and a long term view. The short term, the UK has done really well on the vaccine side. That's made an absolutely huge difference. And I think the pent up demand once life gets back to some degree of normal is going to be absolutely massive, and that'll be terrific for the UK economy. Um, Longer term, I think it's looking a bit more mixed. I mean, I I see, uh, not being an economist, I see these things in terms of internal and external. So um, the the, the short-term upturn in the economy is going to be internal. It's it's all of us getting out more, spending more money, uh, being being able to to, to go to pubs and restaurants and cinemas and being able to go shopping and and so on. That's kind of internal. External... And, and this is a kind of post-Brexit thing. This is, well, what is the UK's place in the world? And this is, I suppose, partly about trade deals. And I think that that's where, where uh, people are saying, well, you know, we previously were part of one of the largest trading blocks in the world, and we're now out on our own. What does that mean for our future? I mean, as you know, Ben, I'm, I'm the perennial optimist. I'm actually... I'm actually really optimistic about the UK's future because although we're kind of quite self-deprecating, we are really good at a lot of things. So, for example, we're really good at um, uh, movie production. Uh, You know, a a lot of films are made here. We're really good at Formula One automotive engineering. A lot of race car teams have got their HQs uh, in the UK because of our engineering and know-how. We're, we're really good in the arts world, in areas like music. So the, the way I think of us, and I don't mean this at all disparagingly, because I am a huge fan of, of Denmark as a country, but I see us post-Brexit as being much more like a Scandinavian country, like Norway, Sweden, or Denmark. Maybe, maybe not the most important country in the world, but one that can pay its way. And I think the only concern at the moment is that we, we tend to treat ourselves quite well. So we're very good at buying a lot of stuff in from the rest of the world. And we're less good at the moment at, at selling a lot of stuff back. But I think over time that our ability to do that will increase because we, we are so innovative in so many different areas. And, and it's no accident, I think, that uh, you know, one, one of the financial services capitals of the world is, is, is in the UK. We're just so very good at so many different things. And that long term means that I think the UK economy will do well internationally. Sounds like a fantastic note to end that. Um, topic on I wouldn't ask you these questions if I was going to get a negative answer we need we need uplifting topics of conversation we need uh, to be reassured there's lots of people I appreciate that a lot of people at home you're either going or will be going to the world of work in the next couple of years or maybe just recently gone into the 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 world of work um there's been a lot of change in the last year and there will be vast amount of change in you know even I've worked for the last sort of seven or eight years and vast amounts of change but Ultimately, um, the resilience is, I think, almost maybe another word for sort of uh, London, the rest of the UK as well, is uh, 
is there and innovation and resilience seems to be in abundance in the country, which is, uh, which is a good place to start. The third story of this week, before we get into a few listeners' questions, um, focuses more on the streaming or media world. Um, so of, after quite a lot of uh, law, accounting, economics, we're, we're ending it with a little bit more on the kind of media side. So hopefully there's something for everyone in this episode of the podcast. Um, and the story that you might have seen over the last um, few weeks, which actually is something that we thought was fantastic for commercial awareness. It has lots of elements to it, which make it something which hopefully you can understand really easily. But it's a real business trend that's going on. It's very current. You'll know, I'm sure you'll be watching Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, all of those sort of things, especially over the lockdown period. Um, but yeah, you might have seen that AT&T, um, who are the owners of um, Warner Media or Time Warner, um, that involves like Warner Brothers Studios, uh, CNN, HBO, um, all of those uh, kind of American channels and um, obviously the studios as, as, as well. Um, they are combining with a, a stream platform called uh, Discovery and they are trying to create a very large um, competitor to the likes of Disney Plus, Netflix. You might have seen that Netflix's last results, so it's Q1 of uh, this this calendar year, um, didn't do quite as well. They didn't grow as quickly as expected. So um, some people seeing it as uh, maybe the end of the sort of the, the pandemic or lockdown bubble uh, or boom that um, the sort of streaming services went in, but also it's a highly competitive market and um, it's not um, changing anytime soon with this move after AT&T, who are a telecoms company that moved into kind of the media studio sector um, about five years ago. So Chris, uh, it'd be really good if you could give a little bit of context about what's going on here, but maybe not too much. And then we'll cover why, it would be fantastic for you to know about when going into interviews or just thinking commercially um, over the next few months. So AT&T um, is really um, in, in the States, um, uh, it's known as Marbell. It, it's basically the, the, the US's principal uh, telecoms company. It's, it's the US equivalent of British Telecom. And you may remember years and years ago, uh, BT got into sports broadcasting at a time when that was actually quite, quite strange. People thought, what's a telephone company doing moving into sports broadcasting? And, and the idea then was that, you know, it was, it was distribution on the one hand and content on, on the other. And AT&T did the same when it acquired Time Warner, because Time Warner's got uh, HBO, for example, it's got CNN and other cable networks. And I think that the thinking then was, you know, we're, we're a telephone company, we're, we're in telecoms distribution, um, you know, whether we use a landline to provide a telephone service or, or a cable network is the same thing. So AT&T bought Time Warner three or so years ago, and the market was really lukewarm about this, and, and its share price didn't do well as a result. And as, as you'll know, uh, BT is now in, in talks to sell uh, sports broadcasting and, and Verizon recently sold uh, Yahoo. So 
I, I think what I find interesting about this is, and it's it's one of those kind of sectoral trends. It's it's kind of uh, um, again that term secular shift uh, trend or, or paradigm shift. It's it's that fundamental change in understanding how business works. And I think what AT and T has realised is we were wrong. Sticking these these things together, sticking content together with with what used to be a phone company actually doesn't work. So what they're doing is they're, they're putting their media assets, as it were, in a joint venture with Discovery to compete, as, as you say, Ben, head on with, with Netflix and, and Disney, uh, because what, what the latter have realized, what streaming is about, is you, you get this stuff on your PC, on your device, um, and, and you get it on demand. And it's a world away from... from um, uh, telephones and TV. That that's the fundamental difference, I think. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I think um, definitely agreed on on that. Just to give a bit of context, you you would have heard of um, all of these shows that will be on this new streaming. This is not an advert for this new streaming, by the way. But like the likes of Friends, Big Bang Theory. I think it's got the Harry uh, Harry Potter franchises uh, under Time Warner as as well. So. You know, this is a massive, massive move. And with Discovery, it's more around uh, sort of nature programs and stuff like that, but still quite popular. I think between them, they have uh, a huge amount of subscribers, something like 79 million uh, subscribers worldwide. And obviously by combining those together, more popular appeal across the board with lots of different shows. And as I say, being able to, to, uh, to compete with the likes of, uh, of, of Netflix, uh, Disney plus and everything like that in this industry, my sense of it is that before the kind of streaming services really took off, um, controlling content or creating content in the industry wasn't maybe seen as that important. Obviously there are studios that did it. Um, but now it seems to be, everything if you can create fantastic content you think of like you know what disney have done you think of the netflix documentaries for instance that is absolutely key to making any money in this industry right yeah, yes and and you see just, just looking at uh, what um uh time warner plus discovery will mean in terms of say disney their their combined revenue should be about 40 billion dollars which is a lot Disney's is 65 billion. And the thing about Disney that I think makes it um, really interesting is, yes, it's got the theme parks and the cruises and all of that. But really, this takes us back to our first story, because what Disney has really got is intellectual property. And what it's been brilliant at doing is buying up franchises. So it, it bought up uh, uh, Lucas Enterprises, George Lucas, Star Wars. It's bought up Marvel. It's bought up Pixar. And what Disney is really, really good at doing is, is nurturing and exploiting characters. And you might notice that the way they do this is uh, take the Lion King. The Lion King won't be available all the time. It'll be available for a year or two. And then it'll be very difficult to, to get hold of for the next three or four years. And then it'll be available again. And what Disney does is it looks at its franchises generationally. It knows that every new generation of kids is going to love its stuff. So it manages according to that, that generational wave. So what Disney is really good at is exploiting its intellectual property. It 
absolutely understands the value of content. And exactly as you say, Ben, this is, this is what it's all about. What's actually happened over the last 20 odd years is the distribution means has been commoditized. You know, whether it's, whether it's TV or phone or laptop or streaming or cable, that just becomes a, 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 a way into people's homes. It doesn't matter how you do it. There's very little value to be had there as a business. The value comes from the content because that's what the people want. They're, they're, they're not buying these services because they like the way they, they're delivered. They're buying these services because they like the content that, that, that is delivered through the distribution mechanism. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Chris. And one thing that we were talking about um, just before we started this recording was that there is very much a business sense of the contents being created. If you look at the films that are being created these days, or a lot of them, and I'm going to level with you, I don't really know what Marvel is. And I think a lot of people on the podcast are going to going to dislike that. You can comment on social media again and let us know like uh, how I'm wrong. I should be watching uh, all of these films, but I don't really watch them. But from my sense of it is that people or these content producers want a lot of surefire wins so when it comes to films maybe not the tv series when it comes to films they'll go for sequels they'll go for remakes because and they'll go for things with you know recognizable characters like marvel because they are more likely to be a hit compared to stuff which is new stories and stuff like that which even with good directors good actors you know they could go either way kind of thing they could be super popular you could have you know we're talking about dallas buyers club wolf of wall street um uh, parasite which was quite recent um won an oscar recently in the last couple of years um but at the same time they could completely flop whereas i think there's more i guess business security in producing films which are which are recognizable or have actors or characters that uh, that that people can already have already gotten bored with as well so being this business driven might ultimately end up being a little bit detrimental to the arts of cinema and stuff like that and i think there's people possibly like myself that um possibly could uh, bang on about it for a little while but you see what i think is really interesting about this from a formulaic point of view is just to the point when something becomes big business, I think it actually offers so many other opportunities because people who, who like arts films or, or foreign language films, they won't go for the Disney product. And that actually creates new opportunities for filmmakers who are true filmmakers who do produce those, those sort of films that, that may be more niche, but certainly can find their own markets. So I see this as almost... Um, uh, business moving in cycles it reaches the point where things become really good for business less good from an artistic point of view but that actually provides opportunities for the next generation to pursue more of the niche market and in time turn that into in, into a bigger business but but the, the other thing that occurs to me and the reason why ben and i wanted to talk about this uh, um, was in in a sense the att the at&t and discovery deal it's it's not so much the deal that we wanted to interest you in it's the fact that this is a great commercial awareness case study because when you see a deal like this that is indicative of something fundamentally changing in a sector from your point of view this is terrific because you can learn about it pretty quickly and you can use it to impress at an interview whether it's for an internship or, or, or for a job um, so 
what I would do is I'd be on the lookout for things like this that look as if they're symptomatic of more fundamental business change. And the way to impress at an interview is, um, let's say you're interviewing with an investment bank or management consultancy, see whether they are involved in this sector. You remember a couple of podcasts back, we talked about Deloitte's having done a report on, on the future of retail in the high street. So an organization that you're interviewing with might well have put a report out uh, on something like this. Yeah, I think that sums up perfectly. I think there are some stories where you feel that there's a lot of information, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Whereas I feel with this, it's very current. Also, it's very, very much ingrained in everyday life that you'll be going through. You are you would have changed your habits of viewing probably when you were very young, you would tune in to watch, you know, the cartoons at a particular time. I definitely do. I'm probably a, a few years older than most of our, our, our listeners, but you tune in at a certain time. Whereas now, like how much live TV realistically are you, are you, are you watching? Like everything's on catch up or not even actually TV in its classic sense, like lots of stuff on, you know, YouTubers and those sort of influencers creating sort of content, which it hasn't come out of a studio. It's come out of a, of a bedroom with a sort of a, a phone, iPhone camera or, or, or something like that. And I think you can see that trend that's changed over time. And now you're seeing businesses reacting to it and business trends. And I think that's what makes it quite exciting um, from a commercial awareness perspective. We're going to leave it there for that story. Hope you've enjoyed the three. Um, Very exciting. We're back with a few of our members' questions now. So we're going to head over to the first one, which is from Harriet. Hi, Ben and Chris. I'm Harriet in my final year of a financial mathematics course. And my question is, there's been a lot in the media recently about businesses lobbying government. How does lobbying tend to work and why is it important for businesses to do this? Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Harriet. I think the lobbying story has taken all variety of different sort of routes across the media into sort of politics. But I think, Chris, what it would be great to to maybe know from yourself is around why why is why is it important? Why do businesses actually lobby governments or uh, government bodies? Um, and what impact is that likely to have? This is really a trend that started in the States where lobbying has been established for a, a long, long time. And and the the um underlying idea is that it's open to anybody to talk to those in government uh, to present their point of view. That the problem with government generally is it's much smaller than people think it is. So um, government gives the appearance of being ever-present and omniscient, but, but actually it isn't. It's just a relatively small group of people trying to run the country. And so what happened in in the States was that businesses realized that actually government wasn't necessarily particularly well informed on on issues. And so um, started uh, talking to government about issues that naturally affected them as a business. And this became professionalized so that you got people who'd worked in government who became lobbyists, who knew their way around uh, Washington, D.C., and, and knew their way around Congress. And they could present businesses' point of view so that when government came, for example, to legislate, it could take that point of view into account. So lobbying itself is something that's quite long established and has has become more established over here as, for example, 
uh, PR firms and, and for that matter, law firms and management consultants have moved in, into lobbying. And I think where, where people just feel a bit um, uneasy about it is whether, um, you know, it, it gets to a point, is there undue favoritism being shown? Are there elements of society that have got an undue advantage because they can get ministers' ears more than others can? But I, I think in terms of business presenting what are often quite complicated strands of argument to government, and government knows that businesses do this and employ people to do this and to present their position as, as well as possible. They, they take that into account. Yeah, really good question, um, Harriet. Thank you so much for um, sending that in. And this week we have a second one straight from Daniel. Hi, my name's Daniel and I'm studying the LPC at London Holborn. And I just have a question regarding the EV market. As the global economy wakes up after the pandemic, is it realising that electric vehicles, whilst idealistic, are not yet at the required capability to fulfil business and consumer demands? This is a really good and topical question because I think it's a question that's been asked of the UK government um, uh, you know, in the last day or so, whether in terms of adoption of EVs, we are where we need to be. Undoubtedly, the pandemic has had a uh, has acted as a break on all sorts of things. And I think the, the the way that question has been answered is is first of all, are there enough subsidies being provided to people to want to buy EVs to retire their existing petrol guzzling cars? And secondly, uh, are, are there enough uh, uh, plug-in stations for people to be able, because EVs don't have the range of petrol cars, be able to plug in uh, their vehicles at will? Um, the first one, I think, is a matter of government because government uh, has in the past provided subsidies and then withdrew them. And I think is likely to provide more subsidies so that we reach that tipping point where more people have EVs than, than don't. The second one about charging, I think that's very much to be met by the private sector. And the private sector tends to be more agile than the public sector. Private companies tend to be uh, by private, I, I, I also include public companies, listed companies, I mean the private sector, businesses rather than government, tend, tend to be much quicker to be able to do things than government themselves. So I think we're going to see charging points uh, cropping up all over the place very, very quickly. Um, so you're absolutely right in thinking that we're not probably where we need to be, but I think that we, we'll, we will see a lot of progress in pretty short order. Yeah, because they've got that um, target, isn't it? I think it's by 2030 that no petrol or diesel cars will be sold in the in the UK. I think a very astute point, Daniel. Thank you for that. That was a really good point. And I think you are probably correct. Um, however, I do also agree, Chris, that I think post-pandemic, it feels like it is very high on government agenda uh, to sort out. And um, yeah, things could start moving quite quickly in this space. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you got lots out of it. And as always, do head to our Instagram and our LinkedIn. There's plenty more extra information there, a few extra links as well. But also, we want to hear from you. So if you've got any insights on some of the stories or want to share a bit of your knowledge, 
please do. Also, if you have secured a role or even got into interviews and used a uh, story that you've heard about on the Thinking Commercially podcast, we really want to hear this. As we said before, it's really the stuff that we care about and want to make sure that you're getting ahead with your applications. Until next time, until next month, have a fantastic few weeks and see you then.